Hey everyone, it's Hannah. Today I will continue reading from Ed Gooding's book, and I would like to remind everyone that some of the statements and opinions in Ed's stories may come across a bit harsh or even ignorant when compared to what we know today about relationships, mental health, abuse, coercive control, and just general victimization. So please keep that in mind when listening. I would also like to let everyone know that I started a Patreon for the podcast and it will be live and running in the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned for all of that. And if anyone's listening, happy Halloween. stationed in Houston, I worked three other cases that stand out in my mind because they were so gruesome. I was still fairly new in law enforcement, and I was looking for all the experience I could find. The Harris County Sheriff's Department was more than willing to help me get that experience and called whenever they could. Once they called and said they had a double killing and would I like to go to the crime scene. I worked some weird cases as a ranger, but none weirder than this one. It involved sadomasochism, S&M for short. A young couple had been married only a short time when the girl's mother noticed bruises on her daughter's arms and legs. Once she had even seen a cigarette burn on her arm. The girl always had excuses. She had fallen down or had dropped a cigarette. The list went on and on. And as it turns out, the girl was the masochist and the boy was the sadist. How in the world these two ever found each other is a mystery, but they did. I suppose each time they practiced S&M on each other, they became more and more intense with their sickness. One day, they decided on the ultimate high. In all my years in law enforcement, I rarely saw a bloodier mess. The girl was nude and hanging by a wire clothes hanger in a doorway just inside the house. She had been burned, sliced, and punctured. As a final act of sadism, her stomach had been slashed from one side to the other. Her husband was lying on the floor with a single thirty-eight caliber bullet through his head. The girl's mother said that at first she and her husband had loved the boy and were proud their daughter had found a good man. When they started seeing the bruises and cigarette burns, however, they became deeply concerned. But with their daughter refusing to complain, there was nothing the mother felt she could do. And there was nothing we could do. Since both people were dead, there was no one to file charges against. The case was closed. I was just getting ready to leave for work one morning when I received a phone call and was told that the body of a male had been found in an empty boxcar on the yard of the MKT Railroad. The MKT was a railroad spur that ran from the Rockwell plant in Belton to Temple. Fred Guffey, the owner of the MKT, and his helper, L.B. Lewis, were moving a string of cars when Guffey noticed a boxcar with an open door. Each time he put his train in motion, the door would slide from one way and then the other. He told Lewis to go close the door and lock it down. Lewis walked up to the car, looked inside, turned, and came running back. Guffey later said Lewis's eyes were as big as saucers when he said there was a dead body in the car and Guffey had better come look for himself. Guffey did. He immediately notified the Temple Police Department, and Chief Leonard Hancock of the Temple Police Department called me and asked if I could help. I left the house and drove to the railroad yard. At the scene, we realized the site was outside of Temple City limits, so we called Lester Gunn's Bell County Sheriff's Office to come. 
Once inside the boxcar, we found not one, but two bodies of young men. Their hands had been bound behind their backs with pieces of parachute cord. Extra clothing and two sleeping bags were scattered all over the car. Both boys had been strangled to death. One of the boys was positioned on his knees with his chest in an upright fetal position. His pants were pulled down around his ankles and he had been sodomized. The other boy, who was in his bedroll, had also been sodomized. There was a jar of Vaseline on the floor with the lid still on, and from the corner of the jar's lid, I was able to secure what appeared to be a large thumbprint. Unfortunately, this print led nowhere. After completing our investigation of the crime scene, local justice of the peace, Joe Harrison, held his inquest and declared the boys legally dead. The bodies were then moved to Dallas for autopsies. From their wallets, which were still at the crime scene, we identified the boys as James Patrick Carlisle, 14, and Patrick Ray O'Brien, also 14. Both were runaways from the Waco State Home for Boys in Waco. We went to the parents of O'Brien. The stepfather said he had had so much trouble with his stepson that he committed him to the facility in Waco. Of course, he denied any involvement in his stepson's death. We asked him to take a polygraph, but he refused. He said that he had been through so many angry times with his stepson, he was afraid the lie detector would show him guilty. The other boy, Carlisle, was also from a broken home. His stepfather said basically the same thing that O'Brien's stepfather had, and he also refused to take the polygraph. The main railroad line through Temple was the Union Pacific Railroad. We requested that one of the UP investigators trace the boxcar back to its origin, and in a short time, he was able to report that it had originated in Michigan and had been empty the entire trip. The Rockwell plant had needed an empty boxcar, and this particular one, which had sat on a Waco siding the day before, was pushed off the main line onto the MKT spur. We talked with the lady in charge of the Waco State Home for Boys. She said both boys had disappeared on the same day, but she had no idea where they'd gone. Knowing that the boxcar had sat for a day before being taken to Temple, the possibility that the boys had been assaulted by a hobo naturally crossed our minds. We questioned people in the hobo jungle just outside Temple without success. No one had seen either the boxcar or the boys, or so they claimed. A month passed, and we still had not been able to make any progress on the murders, but our break came when a carnival arrived in Temple and set up just west of the MKT railroad yard. One of the carnival workers sent his young son, who was about 13 years old, to town to pick up supplies. As the young man crossed the rail yard, he was grabbed by a man and dragged into a boxcar. Thankfully, the man was drunk, and before he could assault the youth, he passed out. The young man had enough presence of mind to lie still until he was sure that his assailant was indeed unconscious. Then he eased out and ran back to his father at the carnival. The father notified the temple police, and they went to the boxcar and arrested the man who was still passed out in his drunken stupor. He was carried to the temple police station, and he admitted assaulting the young boy from the carnival. Once they had finished their interrogation, one of the officers asked the man if he had anything else he wanted to tell them. He said no, not unless they wanted to talk about the two boys that he had strangled to death on that boxcar. The officers were definitely interested. He said that he had been to Michigan to visit his mother and was returning to the Veterans Hospital in Temple where he had been living for several months. He had been riding a bus, but when he got to Bellmead, a suburb of Waco, he ran out of money. He jumped the empty boxcar only to find it occupied by Carlisle and O'Brien. He didn't mind sharing a boxcar with the two nice young boys, and somewhere between Waco and Temple, which is about 40 miles, he had assaulted one of the boys. The other boy, who had been asleep, woke up and tried to come to his friend's aid, and for his efforts, he was choked to death with a cord and then his corpse was sodomized.
The confessed killer was transferred to the Bell County Jail in Belton, where I questioned him about the murders again. He said he was a psychiatric patient at the Veterans Hospital in Temple and admitted to the murders because, as he put it, I'm crazy and there's nothing you can do to me. He was right. He was crazy and we couldn't do a thing to him. He was examined at the Veterans Hospital in Temple, certified insane, and sent to Rusk State Hospital. He later died there. <laughs>